I'm Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. Carly, we are in the midst of civil unrest. The contagion was one thing. The pandemic, the lockdown. But right now, I must say that this is a time that I am truly un unapologizingly white and wishing that I could do something other than stand and support. But I guess that's the best thing I can do right now is to stop talking and amplify the voices of the people of color, black, brown, and other people who are the victims of our criminal justice, of our civil injustice, of our institutional racism. Well, I mean, you pretty much said it all, said it all right there, but at the same time, I mean, and I know one thing you've been playing, you've been playing a part. You've been playing, you've been playing a part from the position that you have at Outsports. You've been playing your part as a parent. So at the same time, I wouldn't sell that short. I would like, I would like to say that that, that level of humility is something that we need right now among the majority community in our country. And I think it's good that a lot of people are taking that initiative and really seeing what's going on. But yes, it's been, I, in some ways, I mean, I wasn't quite alive for 1968, but, the, but we're seeing 1968 play it, play out again here in 2020 in a lot of ways. And It'll be interesting. I mean, you know the Chinese proverb, "May you live in interesting times." Well, I'll tell you, it's been it's been dang interesting these last ten weeks. And I mean, it must be pointed out that that I can I want to say to a certain person in this country, it's time to get out of your bunker and start listening to what's going on and stop missing the point of what's so much of what's going on in the world. Well, he is unsavable, if you ask me. I don't think that there's a... One of the protesters was asked, uh, what do you want President Trump to do? And this person looked at the reporter like, President Trump is irrelevant. <laughs> and that's really true. He has become <laughs> irrelevant in this entire crisis. But you know what's really heartwarming? I've seen supporters around the world, in England, in Germany down under people are coming out and saying no justice no peace and demanding that the way the world works right now is not working for people of color and it must be changed and and but also you're seeing in a lot of these societies the same things are happening i mean well, especially it's not just america no yeah absolutely. for example in australia i was talking to a good friend of mine in adelaide they recently had a protest in they had protest in major cities in Australia as well because there was reports that had come out that showed that that there was cover-ups in the local police departments into open calls that yes, we racially profile. We have done this, we have done that. And this is not just an American issue. This is an issue that permeates a lot of cultures in the world. But I also see that many people are look, have for, for a long time around the world has looked at, at the United States as setting a certain standard. And they see example. that standard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and now they're seeing that that standard is so badly eroded that everybody else, that you have a whole world going United States, WT to the F. What's mm -hmm. going on here? I mean. Uh-huh. I agree. Hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to shift gears. We ought to get away from 
all the bad news, and let's try and find some good news in the world. Let's circle around down to the Southern Hemisphere. I find a little spot down in New Zealand that we might want to check out. What do you say? I am all for, you know what, I'm all for Auckland. Let's go there. Let's set coordinates. Setting the coordinates for Auckland, New Zealand. We got Kate Weatherly, mountain bike rider extraordinaire with us, beaming you up. Kate, you're in the transporter room. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. We're so glad you could join us. Tell us, first of all, what's happening in your country compared to what you've been seeing on the Internet that's happening in our country? <laughs> um. Uh, not not a lot comparatively. Um, obviously, there's a lot of solidarity here for um, the you know people of color in America and you know what they're going through. And obviously, sort of we aren't um, free of our own issues here with um, our own you know um, indigenous population. But I think that really what's going on here really um, pales in comparison to what you guys are going through. Um, I mean, even with you know, COVID, we've had a pretty, had a pretty easy time, you know, our um, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern um, had a really strong mm. lockdown initially, you know, and got everyone basically kept in their houses from the start of things, and that really stopped any large-scale infection, and I think we were, you know, able to keep our deaths below, you know, two figures, and um our I think we have maybe one active case left now everyone else has recovered so I think compared to the rest of the world we're um having it pretty easy here right now I'm gonna get this question out of the way right now can we borrow your prime minister for a little bit <laughs> um I'm quite impartial to Jacinda I think um you could maybe borrow her for a little bit but um I think the key is um, strong, level-headed women in power, I think, is a pretty good starting point. Um, you know, none of these crazy people who I think they know best. Um, as Jacinda says, a um, combination of um, consideration for science and compassion, I think, is what everyone needs at the moment. I saw her on uh, Late Show with Stephen Colbert, he flew down there to meet the prime minister at his, her invitation. And she picked him up in the airport. She picked him up at the airport in her own little car. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think here in New Zealand, we're um, uh, fairly blase. I mean, I, um, I met the old, one of our older prime ministers, um, John Key, when I was, um, an intermediate which is sort of our kind of middle school ish age group here um and i think and it was a few quite a normal thing to do was you know saying hello to your prime minister when you're at school um yeah i think we're sort of quite a different country here to what you guys have over there yeah i mean that i mean no doubt well apparently you are because you you actually put you actually put somebody with a level head and you know, kind of like a solid hand on the solid hand on the steering wheel in charge in the country. I mean, that makes a difference. But I want to switch from steering wheels to handlebars. How's training going for you? What is it looking like for you going forward? I mean, it, as 
this year progresses, as you get ready for the possibilities for this season, coronavirus permitting, and next year. Again, coronavirus permitting. Um, training's been good. It's It's been quite hard to kind of get back into things. I think um, since my injury in, in September, for those of you who don't avidly follow the, um, the downhill mountain biking scene like I do, um, I broke my neck, uh, my C1 vertebra, at, at World Champs in Mont-Saint-Anne, Canada, um, on the 1st of September last year. And following that injury, flew home, um, had surgery on my neck to kind of um, pin everything together, and then spent basically three months in bed, not being able to do much of anything at all. Um, and then following that, I sort of was able to slowly start getting back into things. I did a couple of easy races at the start of this year just to kind of remember what riding a bike is like. Um, and then I really just got stuck into my off-season training now. Um, obviously, there isn't really much of a season this year. I think there is still some optimism that there's going to be a few races at the end of the year. But I think um, for me personally, because I'm going to need a follow-up surgery on my neck, sometime later this year to remove the metalware that's in there um until then i'm kind of not really looking at racing and then following that surgery i'll need to take another probably six to eight weeks off to recover from that so really for me i think 2020 is a write-off in terms of my international um racing season which ironically i could not have timed better because not really anyone is getting much of a 2020 international racing season but i'm looking forward to um racing the EWS, which is the Enduro World Series season in 2021. The um, first two rounds are in Nelson, New Zealand and Tasmania, Australia, which are both really close to home, which is great, which means I can sort of do those races before likely going over to the um, the US to do the North American rounds in, um, I think, one's in California, one's on the East Coast, and then there's one in Canada. So, Kate, talk to me about 2018. I'm glad that 2020 is this time for you to rebuild. But when you came out in 2018, there were a lot of questions, a lot of controversy over the fact that you were presenting as male while racing. And then in terms of your competitors, they saw this sudden switch where you were presenting in your authentic gender and racing as a woman. Is that still a problem? And tell us about what kind of problem it was back in 2018. Yeah, 20, the in New Zealand, because we have um, obviously a different summer season to you guys, our racing season runs through from September to about March. So um, here we have a sort of a, a more localized racing series, which runs through September to December, which was the North Island series. And during that series, I was racing, presenting mail, um, which is what I had been doing for a long time. I had been transitioning for a couple of years at that point, but I'd kind of been keeping my transition and my actual life almost separate from my biking life because I knew that mountain bikers tend to be pretty blokey kind of people. It's a very male-dominated sport, and particularly in New Zealand, tends to be relatively conservative. So for me, I knew that I kind of wasn't going to be really readily accepted by these people if I came out and so for me I was sort of biding my time waiting for I don't know a magical time that I felt like I was either passable enough or something that 
it would be less of an issue for me to come out. Um, and then the first race of that season, so about in September of 2017, a photographer at one of the races found out about me and started telling everyone, so outed me, which was a pretty stressful experience at the time. But ironically, most of my competitors and friends and people I knew in the se- in the series, which in New Zealand is an incredibly tightly knit community, there's about maybe 150 to 200 riders over the entirety of New Zealand who all race downhill competitively and we all race together all the time. So we all know each other really well. And most of them basically had the response of, oh, well, who cares? <laughs> um, which tends to be quite a Kiwi response to just about everything. Um, but as a result of that, because of everyone's sort of nonchalant reaction and the fact that I had been outed at this point, I got in contact with Cycling New Zealand who had, at during that 2017, that year, they had implemented a, um, a policy surrounding trans athletes. And so I talked to them and I had been meeting the policies requirements, the 10 animal, um, uh, what is it, what is it? 10 nanomoles of testosterone per liter of blood, um, whatever the exact specifications are for a year. I'd been meeting that for several years at that point. So I could have been racing in the female field for a long time, but that was sort of the point when I decided to finally change over was the 2017 to 2018 season. And then at the start of 2018, we started our national series, which was sort of a, a more of a big deal. And I started racing in the women's field, which was amazing and you know really cool to finally be racing as me and not kind of masquerading as someone else um and it sort of went okay for a little while and then at national champs in February there was a more of a full field of other female athletes there than some of the other races and when I won that was sort of when people started asking questions that was when I started getting approached by news networks and some of the athletes started kicking up a stink ironically one of the athletes who kicked up some of the biggest you know caused some of the biggest issues for me had actually been one of my closest friends who I had told that I wasn't a man and I was a woman around a year before I'd come out and she had this big issue with the fact that there had been no stand down period that it seemed like, you know, there'd been this two month gap and suddenly I was racing in the women's field when in actual fact, biologically and functionally, nothing about me had changed for a long time at that point. And that the category I was racing in was simply no more than an administrative difference. What I, what I was marked on, on the results sheet, essentially, or at what time I went down the hill. Because you had started your transition already, right? Yeah. Um, this was the when was this this was would have been the start of 2018 and at which point I had started transitioning in I think 2015. So three years on hormones had their effect on you but there are those like this former friend of yours who would say and they did say that you were physically superior to the women you were competing against and that you went from being a middling male to a female champion just by switching from one competition to another how did you respond to those kind of allegations ah that always really gets me gets me going um it's the i think the implication that i went from a average 
male athlete to an exceptional female athlete is, you know, it's incredibly disingenuous because the implication is that the only thing that changed was, you know, the, the classification that I was in, whereas I had been transitioning physically and medically for a very long time at that point, you know, several years. And sort of because of that transition, that medical transition, I had, you know, lost muscle density, lost bone density, um, you know, all the things that come with a medical transition. God, apparently even the shape of the lens of your eye can change, which I didn't even know. But, you know, there are all these things that change and that change our bodies from one that is maybe stereotypically more masculine to one that is more stereotypically female. Although even that is kind of difficult to talk about because you're working on the basis that trans bodies are starting necessarily traditionally male. And the assumption is that, you know, I've had a lot of people have come up to me and they've gone, oh, well, we know when I was 16, I was able to bench press 200 kgs and all this kind of thing. And I mean, maybe for that kind of a person, you know, the the big traditionally masculine people, a transition of a couple of years maybe wouldn't remove every physical advantage they have. But for someone like me and a lot of other trans athletes, we aren't traditionally masculine people pre-transition. And so, you know, we're already starting at a deficit below the average and then sort of accentuating that through transition. And so for me, I think there really isn't any physical difference between me and my female competitors. I mean, I'm slightly taller than some of them, but I'm only 5'10", so I'm well within the normal range of height. And I think there are so many differences in even cis bodies. Um, it's very hard for us to say, you know, that every trans woman is going to have an advanced physical advantage over every cis woman because there's just such a large variation that it's kind of hard to pick a one size fits all. But I know at least in my own anecdotal case, I think it to imply that I have some physical advantage over my competitors is incredibly disingenuous because I know for a fact, many of them have higher power outputs than me. Many of them are stronger, can deadlift more, squat more. And some are even taller and physically bigger than me. And I don't know if we, we consider all of that, there's not really a whole lot of physical advantages left for me to have. One thing I've, one thing I've gotten to know about you real quick is that oftentimes when I interview people who are talking about these issues, they tend to shy away from it. They tend to stay more towards, you know, kind of like middle of the road on it. They really try and downplay it. But you lead up front. I mean, you you deal with this the same way that you ride on the downhill. You attack it and you speak on it. Where did you get to that point where you said, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not going to retreat. I'm going to advance and I'm going to state my case. I think for a long time I had this kind of idea that, you know, maybe I would I would leave the mountain biking scene for a season. You know, I would sort of stop racing for a year and I would do my transition and come back and everyone would have forgotten about me and it would be really easy. And I, I think I had this, I kind of, a lot of trans people, their trans identity is very heavily linked to their identity as a whole. 
and I have no issue with that. I think you should be able to identify however you want to and however it's going to make you happy. But for me, you know, it was sort of being trans was always kind of a, a method of getting from point A to point B. I had the misfortune of having a body that didn't born being born with a body that didn't quite match um, what my brain felt like it should have been. And being trans was just my way of correcting that wrong. And so for a long time, you know, I sort of, I was trying to be as non-intrusive to people's current ideas as I could. And I think my idea was I could keep racing with that kind of mindset. But when I was um, driving home after National Champs, and I, I say driving home, I live in Auckland, National Champs was in Wanaka, which is at the very bottom of the South Island. So we did a 12 hour drive from Wanaka all the way up the west coast of the South Island to Picton and then took a ferry. So driving home's relative. Um, but I was driving home with my dad and I was getting phone calls from various news outlets who were all very interested in getting my story, especially because going into 2018 was the year of the Commonwealth Games, which Laurel Hubbard was going to be competing at and was going to be the first trans woman to be competing at a Commonwealth Games, I believe. So that topic was very hotly contested in the media at that time. And I really had to think about it, you know, whether I wanted to keep my head down and just do what I wanted to do and not really be an activist. But I think that I, at the time I felt like that really was selfish of me. And I want to preface this with, I think that this is my own internal decision. I would never apply this to another person. I think you have your own right to live your life as you want to. And if you don't want to be an activist, you don't have to be. But for me, I felt like it would be irresponsible for me in the position that I had to not do good for our community. And by me taking the interviews, by me being outspoken, by, by me being clear and you know open to communication about this kind of thing, it really helps address the ignorance that I think spurs a lot of the hate that exists in this realm. And also by me being like that, I think it sets up an easier space for people who are going to be coming into, you know, sporting and particularly the downhill realm, you know, other trans athletes in future. I sort of, you know, by me laying down the groundwork of these ideas in the community, it'll make their lives a lot easier. And I think I have a responsibility to do that. But I also don't want to, I'm not the kind of angry person who's going to necessarily protest and be aggressive in my activism. So for me, my activism and my way of doing things has always been about being as, you know, caring and understanding and polite to people as I can be and really creating a space of openness and, like I said, communication with people, like, regardless of how you know, toxic or ignorant they might be, I think there's always space for people to learn and to understand. And I think whether or not they're willing to learn and understand is is up to them and it's not to me. And as long as I present them, you know, the information in a kind and concise way, then I've done everything I can and the rest is on them. We're hearing that special sound at this time of the podcast, which means we have to take a break, pay a few pills, but we're going to be back we have Kate Weatherly here in the transporter room. We'll be back in a minute.
And we're back. Kate Weatherly is joining us from Auckland, New Zealand. And Kate, glad to have you on board again. One thing I want to talk about, breaking, coming back to what you were talking about before the break. I mean, one thing about your story is as you were going through your, as you were going through your transition, you were still pushing through, pushing through, competing, competing in the men's division until you, until you went over and competed as yourself in 2018. What was it like? When did it hit you that finally I get to actually be me going down this downhill? When did it hit you? Honestly, I think it kind of really sunk in when after I won national champs in 2018, I sort of that was that was the first race there had been a significant number of other female competitors normally at the downhill races that we go to there'll be like a hundred men and maybe three women whereas national champs is generally the first race where you have a a more sort of a, a greater number of um other women competing and so I think you know that was really the first race where it kind of hit me that you know like it, I kind of made it like this thing that I've been thinking about and hoping for for so long had you know finally happened you know it had been this oh man one day I will get to you know race in the correct category and not be I won't be racing at this huge disadvantage that I had been you know dealing with for so long you know everyone I'd been racing against had been going faster and faster and I just really couldn't keep up you know not having the the advantage that does it come along with testosterone I, you know, was really struggling and I'll admit it was pretty demoralizing for a good part of 2016 and 2017 trying to race in the men's field at such a disadvantage and and it was sort of such a sense of relief finally being able to race in a in a category that was sort of right and I could push myself and it was sort of it was competitive and fun because you know I could get beaten by some of the other girls like Vinnie Armstrong, a friend of mine, has beaten me a few times and, you know, finally sort of having this fun environment where I was racing in the correct category rather than just losing every race because I was in the wrong field and racing at a huge disadvantage. Now, hearing all that the through nationals and having gone back to taking it back to when you were competing in the male division before before you transition over competing as your authentic self for you at what point in that experience prior to going prior to going over to the right side so to speak at what point did you did it come to you that you know I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired it's time for me to make my move be myself and compete as myself ironically I mean following the sort of where I when I was outed I was still really like umming and ahhing about whether or not, you know, at what point I should swap over. I think at the time my plan was sort of around going, okay, I guess I've been outed, but I'll just wait it out. I'll, I'll race the rest of the season in the male category. You know, that's less sort of abrasive to people's ideas. And then they can sort of have the off season of 2018 to get their heads around the idea of me as a woman. And then, 2018 2019 is when I'll, I'll make the swap over into the women's field but at the time I was working for a, a small bike shop near where I live 
and my boss who was a you know very a really good guy but quite sort of to the point and gruff and he was like what's the point in you racing in the men's field you can race in the women's field and you should have been at this point arguably you're racing in the wrong category biologically you should be in the female category and he basically bullied me <laughs> into changing categories at the end of 2017 um but I think for me you know I'm I've never been the most and this is going to sound quite ironic but I've never really been the most confident or outspoken person so for me I kind of needed that push to do it and once I had done it and once I had arranged everything with Psych New Zealand I got the blood tests had got my you know license with the correct name on it my racing license and all that kind of thing it was really good but I think that push kind of needed to come from somewhere else because I mean even coming out to my parents back in 2015 or 2014 whenever it was was a terrifying experience um you know let alone coming out to the wider mountain biking community as a whole how did that news go with your parents <laughs> um i i came out as my mum first because i sort of i love my dad a lot he's a really amazing guy but he's he's very kiwi you know he's quite sort of quiet and you know he's not necessarily the most emotive person out there and whereas my mum is a little bit more sort of um I guess a, a bit more emotive um and so I came out to her initially and unfortunately you know at the time back in 2014 2015 there was sort of it was still a fairly new thing being trans I think she had a lot of preconceived ideas about what being trans meant and when I told her I think her ideas about what being trans influenced her reaction which although it wasn't necessarily negative you know I wasn't kicked out of home or faced really you know a lot of transphobia or difficult you know sort of reaction from her I think that it she didn't have the positive reaction that I really wanted and that kind of really put me off and so it took me a couple of months to actually eventually work around sort of work up the courage to eventually asking you know to talk to dad and explaining things to him and eventually when I had explained things to him and you know the three of us had had a conversation together and then we had gone and started talking to some professionals which turned out to be very difficult because there really at the time wasn't anything resembling a pathway for trans-based healthcare in New Zealand although we have really great healthcare here that particular area was basically non-existent so it took us another probably about six months to eventually figure out to even find a you know a healthcare practice who had knowledge of trans people and would be able to give a diagnosis of gender dysphoria which in New Zealand to get access to hormones and blockers you do need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria so you know I think now they are probably my biggest personal advocates they do so much for me and they are really incredible and I'm so lucky to have parents who are so supportive of me but the start was a little bit rocky not because of their prejudices or their own transphobia but just because at the time when it came out it was so new and people had these really you know these ideas about what being transmit you know that it was a sexuality that it was a, a fetish thing all these ideas that you know I had had myself you know when I was a lot younger 
which is one of the reasons why I didn't transition younger was because I was I felt really disconnected from these societal ideas of what being trans was and it wasn't until I was introduced to the idea of sort of other young trans people like me who weren't you know tied up in cross-dressing or drag or all these things I now understand a lot better and I totally accept but at the time was sort of as a young child was quite jarring to me um you know and it was sort of I think I had to understand what it was properly myself and then I could then help educate others help them understand what it was and I think I'm still running into that even today I think a lot of people have a lot of preconceived ideas about what trans people are what we look like and the amount of times at international races I've had people come up to me and gone wow you know I heard about you on blah 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 social media site and I thought oh that can't be fair like you can't just be a man and then become a woman and then race in the women's field that can't be fair but then now looking at you and now meaning you I totally get it and I think that that's <laughs> a really big part yeah exactly of, right of, it, and, of and it's, 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 get. it's so common that people who are either ignorant or just not informed or not educated or not even interested in, in educating themselves, their first thought is sexuality, fetishism, to think that this is all about dress up or pretending. When I came out in 2013, people came up to me at work and said, you know, I didn't know what to think when I thought about it. And then now seeing you, I can see it with my own eyes. I see the difference. And when I started this process, it was 2009. And just like in Australia in 2014, there really wasn't a lot of education or a lot of medical help. You really had to sort of be a trailblazer um, in the early days here in the U.S. I'd like to get past your parents, though, and I'm so glad that you had that acceptance, even if it was a little rub, rough and tumble at first. Tell me about your social life. How has it been with your friends? One of the things that Carly and I both experience is sometimes the people you expect to support you the most are the ones who support you the least. And then you're surprised by other people who are 100% supportive. How is your social network? Are people uh, still your friends or have you had to find new friends? Um, I think I got pretty lucky. I think it's quite funny now looking back at high school because that's sort of where I, I've had a few close friends um, who have had, you know, through my entire life and, you know, those friends are still, really my best friends and kind of, you know, always will be. And, and they've been supportive the entire time. I think everyone was definitely really surprised when I came out. Um, I was always quite a masculine kid, you know, trying to masquerade. And I knew that what I was feeling wasn't right. You know, these sort of, I guess, doubts about my body and my gender. And so for me, growing up, I was always pushing myself to be the, the most masculine person I could be to try and sort of I guess outweigh the the feelings I felt weren't right and shouldn't be there um and so I think they were surprised but you know those friends were really have been really supportive since and haven't really had any issues with them at all I think the friends I made at high school is it, very funny because we were all very aggressively straight and are now all gay um all of us <laughs> you know um it's what high school does to you. you go to university and suddenly everyone's like oh wow no okay um oops that was wrong 
Um, and I think especially, I think that's really epitomized in um, my boyfriend who I started dating in 2014, um, who at the time was my girlfriend. Um, he is also trans and has had his own separate transition to mine. Um, and we just somehow started dating before either of us knew we were trans and together in our own time and in our own way figured out that we were trans and had our own transitions and I mean we're, we're still straight but I like to think of it as straight with extra steps <laughs> <laughs> yeah now uh, speaking of that I mean having I mean having that type of how important is it for you as a competitor to have that type of support, especially when you literally put your neck and your back on the line at places like that Aurora Tua place, which I, which I still ask again, why exactly race there? That just look, that would scare me. And not a lot scares me, but that would, I mean, what's it like when you're going through a hard sport like this, and especially when you're moving over to the enduro ranks, which is even harder to have the type of support of a partner like your partner. Yeah, I think um, having Aaron is, you know, really made such a big difference. You know, I think he understands the struggles that I go through, you know, emotionally in a way that really no one else in my life does because he experiences the same the same feelings, you know, as a, as a fellow trans person. I think although his experience is different to mine, we kind of really get each other on a on a level. I don't think that really any cis person could really ever understand. Um, and so having him there has always been, you know, incredibly helpful and supportive of me. I think another big thing is that he's not really a mountain biker. He's not even really sporty at all. And I think that having him as someone where I can kind of, you know, have a break from, you know, mountain biking, which I love and, you know, the sport is amazing and it's basically my whole life, but I, it can get a bit full on sometimes, especially when I'm dealing with, you know, the fallout of a, of a race, you know, the, the response and the hate that I might be getting, having, you know, him to go back to and kind of be able to forget about that, I think has been really important. And, you know, he's obviously really interested and supportive of what I do, but I think, for me, it's really important to have a space in my life where I can have a break from just racing and bikes and training all the time. Now, I mean, it's always good to have that break, especially after the season you had last year, which obviously had the you you had the down yeah you had the down period at um you had the down period at Saint Anne, where where that was where the injury occurred, but also you had a lot of ups and you had a lot of mo moments. One of the biggest was when you went, when you're in, you, you run into Austria, you run in Austria and you end up third. I mean, top getting top three in a world cup event. I mean, what was that like for you as far in context of an entire season where by your own admission, you said you learned a lot. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, if nothing else, it was incredibly surprising. I think that, you know, um, I really wasn't expecting to get a result that good. Before that season, I had really set myself a goal of being consistently in the top 10. And if I was lucky, maybe getting a podium. And in my first two races of the season in Fort William in Scotland, I qualified fifth 
and then finished sixth, which in downhill, we have a five person podium. So I'd finished one, one place off the podium and then Leo Gang to then finish third, I was suddenly like, wow, you know, I'm doing a lot better than I expected, which if nothing else, it was a real sort of a sense of accomplishment because I had stopped working really at the end of 2018 and had basically been training full time and up until that start of the international season in 2019. So for me, it had been, you know, hours and hours and hours on the road bike in the garage, you know, doing intervals or in the gym or out on the mountain bike in the forest and, you know, crashing and trying to do race pace runs by myself in the forest, all these things that no one ever sees, you know, everyone just sees the the final race run at the race and the result that you get, but no one ever sees all the stuff that goes on in the background. And I think that for me, it was just a really big sense of personal accomplishment to know that all the work that I put in had really counted, like it, it mattered. It hadn't all been in vain. And I think that for me, it was just, you know, third place is amazing. And to, you know, stand on a World Cup podium, I think is obviously something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. But I think that for me, it was more about the sense of personal accomplishment that, you know, all the training I'd put in, flying halfway across the world and then, you know, doing a race in Austria and getting a good result was really, it just, it mattered to me that I did that. And I think that that was really special. Now, one thing after the season that you had last year and what you're going to be doing this year, you're setting up for, you're going to be doing a whole new sport. I mean, what are the biggest differences between the down, between the downhill and enduro racing that you're going to do in 21? Um, I think downhill and enduro have a lot of similarities. I think you see that particularly with the amount of crossover of athletes. I mean, not just me. There are a lot of really high-level athletes who do really well in both sports. I think the skills are really transferable. But the biggest difference is in downhill, we take a ski lift up the hill and then you have one run top to bottom down an incredibly physically demanding and difficult track that normally takes sort of three or five minutes. And then once you've done that run, that's it. Your weekend's over. You've had practice on that track all weekend to really get it dialed in. But when it really comes down to it, it's just the one run on Sunday. Whereas in Giro, it kind of takes the idea of having a timed stage down a down a hill but kind of applies the ideas of stage racing to that where you will pedal between each stage. So you have to be able to climb up the hills rather than having a ski lift to do it for you. Um, And then you'll have a timed downhill stage, which can often be considerably longer than a downhill. It can be anything between, you know, three minutes to 20 minutes in some cases. And you'll normally do around five of those timed stages in a day and then your overall time of every stage is combined to you know see where you finish at the end and so it kind of it adds in on a whole nother level of endurance because not only do you need to be able to have the technical skill to ride these you know demanding difficult tracks but you also need the endurance to although the uphill state the uphill transitions as they're called aren't timed 
you do still need to be able to ride them and then do five other timed downhill stages as fast as you possibly can. So it adds in a whole nother element of endurance and also being able to pace yourself. And I feel like it kind of has more tactics than downhill. Downhill tends to just kind of be put yourself down the hill, ride as hard as you can and hope you get down in one piece. Something I you, wouldn't be able to do. I'd be the first to admit. <laughs> you, you and me both. <laughs> you, you mentioned before that you live in the same world of geekdom that Carly and I do. And as you've heard us say, this is the trans sporter room. We are admittedly Star Trek fans. What's your thing? What do you, what gets you off? What kind of fantasy or sci-fi do you enjoy? Um, unfortunately, I'm not much of a Star Trek fan. I, I think the never being introduced to it as a kid kind of has, I don't really have the nostalgia for it, but I've always been a huge Star Wars fanatic. I think there are very few people I know who have quite the encyclopedic knowledge of um, it that I do. I, uh, yeah, and I mean, plenty of video games I'm into. Got I kind of haven't really played a lot for a very long time, but obviously my three months I spent in a neck brace in bed kind of got me back into things. Um, <laughs> Tell us, what is your video game? At the moment, I think my um, my poison of choice has been the new Animal Crossing. I think, <laughs> uh, I think I might have put like 300 hours into it since it came out in March. Um, everybody is on that. and Everybody's on that Animal Crossing. <laughs> everybody's on that one thing i want to know that since you mentioned star wars okay they are they're going to give you the keys to any star wars vehicle you want what are you picking <laughs> oh. oh oh man oh you put me on the spot oh hey this is the transporter room it's what we do <laughs> <laughs> well you think man. i'll tell you i used to love the y cruisers and I know everyone loved the X Cruisers, but I thought the Y Cruisers were really cool. But I gotta pick the Millennium Falcon. How can you not pick the Millennium Falcon? The Millennium. <laughs> I mean, it's fast. It did the Kessel Run in less than twelve parsecs. Twelve parsecs. But it, it flies better. <laughs> it flies better than it looks. Now, for me, I am Encon T sixty five. I am Encon T sixty five B X Wing all the way and uh, forever. You give you give me a, you give me an X Wing, and I'm on top of the world. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't, there's just so many, I, like, obviously the, the, you know, the um, Millennium Falcon is the, you know, the kind of easy choice, you know, everyone loves Han and Chewie, but I'm pretty impartial to Darth Vader's TIE Fighter, like. Ooh, oh, I like, I like it. TIE Fighters, yeah, are the, are, when, 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 when Finn and, um. Poe stole the TIE fighter in uh, um, The Force Awakens. That was really cool. I love that they stole the TIE fighter. And um, what else? Uh, what's your favorite of the Star Wars movies? Oh. Okay, now see, are we including all Star Wars canon content? Every because single if we talk Star everything. Wars movie. Because if we well, say if we're talking Star Wars canon, then my favorite media is the Clone Wars. Okay, you like the like cartoon? The yeah, 
yeah, Star Wars The Clone Wars is is the best Star Wars content, in my opinion, followed closely by um, Empire, obviously. And and Clone Wars is canon, so everything that happens yep, there yep. is part of the universe. I loved Rogue One. I would say after oh, Empire, Rogue, Rogue One is yeah, Rogue One's way up there. I yeah, yeah. I, after I after liked... Empire is my it's probably and Star Wars is probably my third favorite movie. Yeah, no, I yeah, I'm I'm also I actually rate The Force Awakens above a lot of. Mm. the the original trilogy because i think that i know a lot of people critique it for being a carbon copy of a new hope but i think that it kind of it took the the tried and true you know recipe of a new hope and kind of it i feel like it fixed a lot of the wrongs of a new hope and brought it into a modern era and mm -hmm. i think for me also i never saw the original trilogy you know kind of when it first came out i was born a oh, long you're too time young. afterwards sure. yeah you're yeah, too young so, so for me i think the force awakens kind of it, it had the 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 experience of a new hope you know that kind of the nostalgia with like the new amazing kind of star wars content but in a a content that i could see it when it came out new rather than just something i kind of experienced in a you know that my dad liked and he made me huh. watch it kind of thing now in New Zealand, can you see the Mandalorian? Yes, the Mandalorian is top notch. I'm and, a and they're bringing huge back fan. Boba Fett, who fell in the pit on uh, Tatooine. See I don't know if they're gonna, gonna if they're gonna this. be if, if they're gonna be bringing back canon characters who we think have died. I need um, Mace Windu because Samuel <laughs> Jackson was like Mace Windu should have survived, and George Lucas said sure. So I'm waiting for my Mace Windu return. Well, see, that's the thing. We don't know if Mace died. We don't. We can't say definitively, just like Boba. <laughs> we can't we can't say I somehow I don't see Boba Fett dying from that. Because Boba Boba's one of those people that are so even though they're they're kind of on the wrong side or more accurately on their own side, they're just so cool that you gotta like them. So having Boba yeah. back, not a bad not a bad thing at all. Actually, I'm, I'm just excited for Ahsoka Tano to be in the Mandalorian because, oh man, like I'm here for that. <laughs> no, you, I'm very excited. No, yeah, you are really deep, deep into some Star Wars. If you pulled that one out, <laughs> I, I gotta, I, I gotta I, give I, credit. I, I have to give credit there. <laughs> no, it's pretty much. I think Star Wars is probably the the nerdiest niche knowledge i have i i mean like i appreciate a lot of other you know particularly sci-fi stuff you know i'm a big fan of the alien movies um except alien requiem we, we don't speak about <laughs> that one <laughs> um but you know yeah i think i think star wars is kind of peak oh and doctor who doctor who and star wars are the yes two. the new doctor is wonderful i love the new doctor mm -hmm. Yeah, I still feel like she's being written badly. Like, I still, I just. I wish she didn't have so many companions. I, I honestly think it makes a show. It should just be. It should just be her and um, what's his face? I can't remember the actor's name from the chase. Um, yes, uh, I know who you're talking about. Kate. I can't remember place's name either. Yeah, but it should just be those two. I think. I agree. Be, I agree. It would be I better to know. widow it down. Well, I have to say, when you first told us that uh, you were into uh, geekdom. 
I had a bad feeling about this. <laughs> you went there, did I did. You you went there. Han, you went there, didn't you? Who's scruffy looking? <laughs> it's a wonder you're still alive. <laughs> it's uh. a wonder. <laughs> oh, we could oh we could get we could do this, this all night. All yes, <laughs> we, we could. could. <laughs> we could do oh. this all but I'll tell you. But but actually I will say this. That explanation of of Force Awakens, I can run with because I was one of those people. that was kind of like I was kind of like unsure about Force Awakens, but I like what I saw. I like what I saw. I don't know about the part about New Hope being flawed, because I mean, to, I mean, but of course, when I saw New Hope, I was eight years old. That was the same year that our public TV station back in my hometown in Nebraska started showing Doctor Who. So. Imagine an eight-year-old kid looking at this stuff with your eyes wide open. It's like, wow, all this story. And you're like, you're, and like typical little kid after a great bedtime story. Give me another one. Tell me another one. Tell me another one, even though it's time to go to bed. <laughs> that's the way it affected me. And that's the way New Hope did. But I'll tell you, The Force Awakens gave me that same feeling. So, and, and I thought, I thought a lot of the criticism of it was a little bit unwarranted because it was a type of movie, in my case, it was what it was and it worked. And it, plus, it's not necessarily Star Wars for my generation. It's Star Wars for Kate's generation. And I think a lot of the storytelling going forward will be driven towards that. And I can be, I can be open and I, should, and I must be open to embrace that the same way that people should be open to Doctor, to Doctor Who being who Doctor is now, which really shouldn't surprise anyone because who can be whoever they want to be. Exactly. Well, it's been great having Kate Weatherly here in the transporter room. Kate, thanks for beaming up mid-afternoon Australia time while we're here uh, in the middle of the night <laughs> here in America. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Th hey, thanks for being here. And I'm going to, I want to tell you something right now. There was a round of the Enduro World Series next year, which is in the American state of Vermont. It's in oh, an oh, area. About, please come. Please come. It, it is <laughs> an area about two hours away from me. I am going to be there. I can tell you that now. We'll treat you to some uh, Vermont syrup and pancakes. Uh, sounds <laughs> great. Race food. <laughs> All right. Setting coordinates for Auckland, New Zealand. Be hanging back down. Be well, be safe. Thank you, Kate. Cheers. And thank you, Carly. We'll see you next week on The Transporter Room. See you, Don. Bye, everybody. Bye.